Something Positive for Positive People is sponsored by Waxo, the home of hashtag We Need a Button. We Need a Button is raising awareness of the need for a button or a filter to see which doctors are LGBTQ friendly. Because unfortunately, most LGBTQ people have had at least one bad experience with a medical professional, whether it's rudeness, inappropriate questions, or denial of treatment. So head over to Waxo, W-A-X-O-H dot com, and you can read more of these stories. And you can also follow the hashtag, we need a button. I also want to express my excitement and gratitude for everyone who took that survey that I asked. There were 110 responses that I was able to record, and that's plenty of information for me to share when I go to STD Engage. So I'll be in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm trying to decide the dates because the hotel stay there is really expensive. It's a four-day-long conference of uh, members of the National Coalition of STD Directors, and the conference is going to be full of public health professionals. This is a really good opportunity for me to make connections and put these resources out there and share the experiences of people who have been on the podcast to bring more urgency to there being some sort of seriousness to the herpes stigma. I know that there are people out there who suffer from very intense, severe physical symptoms, and the majority of people that I've spoken to, at least, have had more of a negative response to the mental and emotional aspects of it, while doctors, well, medical professionals seem to be completely overlooking that aspect. They still kind of have this brushing off of, uh, this isn't really a big deal. Um, If you have physical symptoms, take the medication. Like, I feel like it's a very dismissive attitude towards it. And unless you're in it, unless you associate with and communicate with people who are living with herpes, you have no idea what people are struggling with. So my goal here is to bring the results of that survey to the live podcast recording that I'll be doing at the event and also being able to share how much of an urgency there should be in regards to getting better support available to people when they're diagnosed and how useful it can be if when someone receives a positive diagnosis, they're presented with the hands network or even this podcast as a tool for support, or if they're presented with consistent, accurate information, because when you get that pamphlet, like I don't know about you, but when I saw it, the statistics that were on the sheet of paper didn't match what I Googled when I got home. And it also just can tend to make a person feel like a statistic. So I'm really hoping to be able to make some kind of connections where we can put this resource in front of people. Now, May 23rd, 2019 is when I made something positive for positive people, a nonprofit. And y'all, I have struggled with applying for grants, applying for funding so that I can do more with this podcast and help pay for people to get therapy and it's just not been working out like I'll be honest with you I've gotten very discouraged from doing so it came out of my relationships it came out at work and it came out on recording other episodes of the podcast and you can kind of hear it in a couple of the podcasts that I've recently recorded that I just I was experiencing like early symptoms of burnout maybe I don't want to do that I sat down with it I wrote down in my journal what I was going through and what it was was just like an ongoing rejection because as I reached out to the people I had these lists I've reached out to people who construct lists for people who would fund your um project or nonprofit. And the majority of feedback that I received was just that you need to be 
invited to apply. And that got really disheartening because I'm putting a lot into these pitches, these emails, these phone calls. And ultimately, by the end of it, it's like, oh, well, we already donate to who we're going to donate to. We fund who we're going to fund. Um, you have to be invited to apply for the grant. So that got discouraging. So I had to just step away from it. I'm hoping that I'm able to make the connections for people to be able to endorse me, I guess, in the grant application process. And then from there, we'll be able to do so much more with this podcast. And then I can also open up the nonprofit to supporting sex educators, to supporting more therapists and being able to provide more support to the people who are really struggling to navigate their positive diagnosis. So there's a lot that can be done here. And I appreciate all the support that you guys have provided. Those reviews help tremendously. And even the donations. And also, if you make a donation of $25 or more in the U.S., you'll get an adult-sized t-shirt. We have about 17 left, and the sizes range from an extra small to a double XL to an extra extra large one of those (laughs) so again thank you for all your support if you're going to be in alexandria virginia for any reason at all and you're able to attend the conference or you'll just be in the area i'm always down to meet new people and have new podcast guests on to help expand the perspective of what this tool is doing so i'm getting back to the podcast and just continuing to provide support that way so I'm going to be continuing to reach out to people, interviewing people, recording, editing, and uploading podcasts, and the stuff for the nonprofit is there, but there's not much we can do until we get a lot of funding so that I can do the things that I really want to be able to do for people. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. I enjoyed it. It's a great episode, just like I think all of them are, (laughs) but uh, this one's very useful. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brand. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit that aims to provide support, community, education, resources, and empower people who are living with SCIs, such as herpes, HIV, um, if you're struggling with any of the curable ones as well. We share the experiences of people who are living with these SCIs, and we provide professional and expert resources from sexuality experts, sex educators, and organizations such as Amaze.org, who I have the pleasure of being able to bring on Brittany here, who is going to introduce herself for us. Hi, everyone. My name is Brittany McBride. I am the Senior Program Manager of Sexuality Education at Advocates for Youth. I am a part of the partnership that helps support Amaze.org, so between Advocates for Youth, Answer, and Youth Tech Health. We are the organizations behind the fun animated videos you see online. I only recently heard of Amaze and their videos as an organization. I've seen the videos shared on Instagram by other sex educators. It's just when you share a story or a screenshot or something, like that's how I was able to recall what it was that you guys were doing. So when I spoke to uh, the person who connected us, I was like, oh, I have seen that before. So there's some brand recognition behind it as well. And I like that it's circulating in the sex education, sex positivity community on Instagram. Yeah, we are very excited about it. We're excited to get honest sex ed information into the hands of our young people in a way that they want to receive it. Smartphones, being able to pull up YouTube, it makes it super easy for us to access them. And it's really our responsibility as a society to ensure that what they're getting is the appropriate, honest information in a way that is affirming 
of all of our young people. And it's exciting as someone who works with people who do the sex ed work in schools to see it happening there, but it's also really exciting to see it happening at home and seeing parents accessing the videos and asking questions about it and using it as a resource just because we realize that so many young people don't have access to honest sex ed within their schools. So this may be the only time they can get some credible resource at their fingertips where they can then make an informed decision after watching a really great video. You know what this reminds me of is how Blockbuster, Hollywood Video were all in business and they were your go-to place for renting videos and uh, video games. And then here comes Netflix. I kind of get a sense that that's where we're going with this. So we're not able to get sex ed into the places that need them the most or where there's a demand for them. But children are opting into voluntary programs and resources on their own. So there's a need for it. There's a want for it. Children, adolescents are looking for this information and now they're able to have access to it. So it's important that we're able to bring them Netflix instead of them going to a different place where they can get any information that may not that they may not be at that level you know it's like when you go into porn you don't want to go into your first time having sex after having watched some intense BDSM where there's blood and bondage and all kinds of stuff because now you're allowing yourself to think oh well this is what sex is exactly we just want to want to acknowledge that the conversations that we're having are super important but also they're human and they're funny and we are able to get them this really great information in a way that is engaging for our young people and also reflective of like the realism of sex and things that come with relationships and how some things can be very difficult and tough and challenging and at the same time some things are going to be really really funny so i think that's what's so exciting and interesting about these videos is that we keep it real in the sense of We want to be as inclusive of all the topics that cover what we are trying to get to our young people so that they can then make informed decisions. But we want to do it in a way that's funny and interesting so that they keep coming back and also that they can build that trust with us and that not only are they going to get the information that they're looking for, they're going to get it in a way that is actually reflective of what, you know, relationships in life are. Like they're hard and funny and silly and challenging and wonderful all at the same time. The first video that I watched was on the about page and the analogy that was used was Katy Perry video kissing a fan as a reference of violating consent and I cannot remember even the word consent when I was in middle school high school and we were talking about sex we were talked to about STDs we were talked to about pregnancy and I believe that was it it's like here are the consequences of having sex but everybody wanted to have sex for some reason why was that because it's a pleasurable experience and the more resources we have that allow us to understand that this is a pleasurable experience, that it also has all these other elements to it. Understanding your body, understanding how bodies change, understanding that bodies are unique 
understanding things like blood are going to be normal. So we're talking about menstrual cycles and uh, maybe even uh, the first time having sex. And there's all these other elements to it. We even talk about relationships. I think that this kind of tool allows for us to look at relationships differently, especially as young adults or children, adolescents navigating dating, because it's going to happen. And we want to have tools that allow us to initiate conversations and be able to navigate those as well. I couldn't agree with you more, Courtney. Consent is something that I personally am constantly pushing within my position at Advocates. I do a lot of trainings for teachers across the country. And whether it be elementary, middle, or high school, consent is always part of the conversation regardless of whatever topic I am training them on. And it's always a surprise, I think, to my colleagues who I'm training, to family or friends or the parents in my kids' classes. How are we having conversation about consent in kindergarten? And my question back to them is, why are we not having conversations about consent from birth? I always have to clarify, having these conversations at a very young age don't even have to have anything to do with sex. What I'm trying to do is set a very strong foundation for our little kids on what it means to respect another person, respect their choice, and look for an affirmative consent before you do something that interferes with their personal space, their body, or their personal items. So having that conversation with my three-year-old about why he can't take his sister's goldfish, we are having a conversation about consent. So that is pervasive throughout when we discuss, you know, comprehensive sex ed. It's such a sexy word and we love to use it all the time. Those of us who do sex education, we provide comprehensive sex ed. That's what we're talking about. We don't want to just talk to someone's underpants and talk about the anatomy and the physiology of the human body and how to avoid unwanted pregnancies and STIs. We want to really talk to the whole person. We want to have a holistic approach. What we want to do is provide them with a complete toolkit so that they can then go into their adult lives prepared to make the decisions, whatever it is that they decide. So for us, what we want to do is we want to talk about healthy relationships. We want to talk about effective communication styles. We want to talk about consent. We want to talk about like what's it like to maybe get an answer that you don't want to. What are some of the coping mechanisms for that? We want to talk about sexually explicit images. As you said, that's pervasive right now throughout as well. We want to have all of these conversations. We want to talk about how we can go above and beyond to kind of reach our communities who are at a disproportionate risk for negative health outcomes. So we want to have a conversation with our students. Why are our black and brown communities at a higher risk than their counterparts? Why are my LGBTQ young people at a higher risk? their counterparts what can we do we really want to empower our young people and work with them and serve as their allies because they are the ones who are leading the charge of we haven't done a great job of this what are the ways that we can improve so that we can do better and find that way to develop equity within the field of sex education Um, so i'm thrilled to be able to partner with young people have them lead this effort and take over please as we really push ourselves into a space that creates affirming sex education where everyone is getting what they need from it, not just to check a box, but in order for them to truly 
get the information that they need in order to then lead the lives that they want. When I hear you talk about consent at an early age, when people are asking, why do we need to talk about this in kindergarten when the conversation should have been had long before, it makes me think we've had sex positive families on the podcast before episode 22, I believe. And this analogy was given that wasn't sex related at all, but it was something as simple as tickling. So a child grows up and they're tickling their younger sibling and the younger sibling is saying stop, but the old older sibling is seeing this body response of laughter and joy and pleasure, but the words that are coming out are no. Unchecked, that translates something as simple as tickling into adulthood as an older aggressor or abuser even engaging in sexual activity that hasn't been consented to. They're hearing no and they're thinking, oh, it's okay, you really want it. Or their no's not being received as a no given the natural body response of maybe more lubrication or more, well, the indication being more engorgement. Let's just use that word. And they're looking at that as permission to continue rather than hearing a person no. And on the other end of it, you have the person who's being tickled growing up and finding themselves in the situation, feeling like their voice isn't heard, feeling like their body isn't their own. So these things really go so much deeper than just sex education or just uh, talking about genitals, which makes adults, you know, not talking about it to this point, the adults who have the children who need this sex education weren't given that education. So the adults are like, ew, genitals, my kids aren't doing that. I don't even want to think about that. And then kids are like, ew, genitals. And then, you know, they find themselves in these situations and we're not equipped with the tools to engage and communicate with our youth and they don't have the language and tools to communicate with adults. I couldn't agree with you more and what a wonderful example to use. And I appreciate the fact that you're highlighting that sense of accountability because there's only so much that sex ed, even really great sex ed in a school is going to do. And I think that there's this miscommunication or a misunderstanding that we want sex ed to live in schools isolated by itself without any involvement from others. And that could not be farther from the truth. What we want to do is to give them content information and then have them go home with that information to continue those conversations with their caregivers, with their community, with the people who they care about who help to shape their own values as they're developing them themselves and creating that sense of accountability at home of if I am saying no and my sibling or my friend or whomever doesn't stop, will my parents step in, continue that conversation with the other person who is the aggressor to then explain this is why we do and don't do this and why we respect each other's bodies and modeling those conversations whether those be in interactions between the kids or at home between adults in the church in the community everywhere that is how we are going to start to push that shift in the cultural paradigm and hopefully start counteracting some of those concerns of oh, I'm so nervous, I can't have those conversations, we can't talk about genitals. Kids don't need to know about this information. Kids are humans. They're sexual beings too. 
I mean, in preschool, they're touching themselves because it feels good. It's totally normal. And then when we kind of imprint our own shame and our own issues onto our young people, it just kind of continues that cycle. So what we are trying to do, and what's great about the Amaze videos, is not only are we creating content for young people so they get the great information that's accurate, we're also creating content for parents so that they're building their own ability to continue these conversations with their young people so that they are then available, interested, and feeling confident to then support their young people and have really wonderful conversations, hopefully, at home as well. When we talk about consent and people learning to deal with a no can you talk to me a little bit about that because i understand in adulthood that dealing with rejection is challenging no one likes yeah. rejection but it's yeah. something that we weren't taught is normal and that applies to relationships that replies to any kind of an exchange that also applies to the workplace if you're in sales you're going to hear no a lot and people who hear no develop this resilience to hear no and there's this this mindset of oh not no doesn't mean no when it comes to work but we tend to take that into relationships so what resources and tools are available that teach us about rejection and healthily navigating it yeah that's a great question and i think that there's a real opportunity for there to be more content on that i think this is something that we are now now that the conversations are being had and really accepted with the folks that we work with on doing more on consent, having the conversations then about how to deal with rejection in a healthy way has also come to the table. And for us, it's really about navigating, managing one's own emotions, pulling together a separate toolkit of like how to deal with the feelings of disappointment. And I think we can do it in a very easy way that can start from a very young age, you know, having a conversation of, I want to play with a toy. I asked my friend, my friend said no. Then talking about how do I feel and engaging in continuing that conversation, acknowledging those feelings and then identifying a way to then help manage and or move past those feelings is a huge way of practicing that skill because ultimately that's what it is. It's a skill. If it's not one that you've had to practice often and that muscle's not as strong as it needs to be, it can be very challenging. It's also something adults and kids alone struggle with, not only like hearing no, but also having to respect no as well. Sometimes you hear a kid may say like, I don't want to hug grandma. Or what do we immediately say? Go give your grandma a she just came in to see you, go give them a hug, go give them a kiss. And us as adults having to manage our own implicit bias of meeting expectations of society, whether those cultural norms within our own home, within our own community, we have to start respecting what we are also saying, you know, respecting the no from our kids, from our young people. And I recognize that growing up in a culture where it was like, I was not too back against my elders, what I was told to do, I was supposed to do. And I'm personally finding that it's something that I'm trying to impact myself now as a parent. I'm always, you know, your body, your choice. And the other day, my seven-year-old, she is going to kick my butt for this, but she was digging in her nose. 
I mean going to town for a good five minutes and I asked her to stop and we're in public and she's just going to town and she turned to me so smoothly and says, my body, my choice. And I had to just shut up. And I kept on going and all the other parents looked at me like, what are you going to do? I was like, this is what I've told her. This is what I've created. And although it may make me feel a little bit uncomfortable, it may not be the choice that I would personally make for myself or for her. This is the kind of no that I have to start to accept and kind of push past and acknowledge that that power differential between parents um, and children, whether and the power differential and within relationships, because they're there as well, that we have to really push ourselves into an uncomfortable space sometimes to affirm that accountability that we need in order to shift the culture. We talk a lot about the dynamic between the child and the adult, and we kind of bounce back and forth. I want to touch on some of the discomfort for the adults. I feel like with this education tool between child and adult, we're emphasizing consent, not only between child and self, child and world, but also between parent and child. As parents, I understand that there's this... um, this need for control or something like that. Like parents need to be able to just control their kids, so to speak. So for instance, you're in public and you tell your child no, and they say no to you. At what point does there need to be some kind of intervention? Because I can see, you know, growing up, if I told my mom, no, she's gonna smack the shit out of me, (laughs) you know? And not to say that that's not acceptable but what are some ways that we can deal with the no ourselves so if it's hey we need to leave from this place so that we can go back home and our child says no i want to stay here i think that that's where a lot of adults may be a little intimidated by putting something like this in place because it gives children too much freedom too much voice Yeah, that's a great question, and I love this conversation because it parallels with a relationship that may include sex as well. My encouragement is is to set parameters as early as possible. We can set ourselves up for success. So if I'm going somewhere with my children where I know it's probably going to be difficult to leave or they want to stay a little bit longer, having those conversations and setting those expectations of this is what I am going to do, these are my intentions, This is what I am asking you to do prior to us getting there. Hopefully kind of clarifying on what we are hoping each of the partners are hoping to do while we're at that space will then lead to something that will be somewhat respectful, understanding when they're really little, it's a bit difficult, but hopefully mimicking and uh, modeling what that should look like when they get a little bit older so that when they're in a situation with a partner who they may or may not have a sexual relationship with, setting those expectations very early, having a conversation, utilizing healthy communication skills to identify what you are and are not comfortable with, where you want to go, when you want to leave, what you want to do, and then having your partner respect that. And if your partner does not, how to navigate whether or not that's a relationship that you may want to continue or a partnership you want to continue is something that, once again, I think is started once they're when they're really, really little. I get the question all the time of when do I start talking about these things with my kids? Like, when do I have the sex talk? And... I hate the amount of pressure that us as parents and caregivers of these young people, we put on ourselves 
to sit down and have the quote unquote talk, how terrifying, and I do this for a living, to think about sitting down for like two or three hours and making sure that I talk about everything I need to talk about in this finite time where I'm super stressed and I'm sure my kid is not wanting to be there as well. I say take the pressure off of yourself. You start having these conversations from birth and it's just a little bit at a time and then you're getting more comfortable with it. You're continuing to expand upon the conversation. It gives you as the adult enough time to kind of practice these skills, identifying some places where you could do a better job of trying to find those resources like Mace to help you out with that. And then as they get older and you become more experienced, you all continue to like have even more fruitful conversations that then may include some sort of sexual encounters. But this is what we're trying to do. These are the kind of shifts we're trying to make and hopefully providing these kinds of tools like a maze will help with that. We have to acknowledge that currently quite a few states don't even require sex education. Therefore, we know a lot of parents don't even have a lot of the content necessary to have these conversations. So supporting our young people while also supporting the people who care for them is an easy partnership that we can make to help make some improvements. We set the boundaries early for the behavior. So we're we're needing to just be clear about our intentions whenever there's a situation that may come up that the child may not like. And also the time to have these conversations. There isn't a time where we have the conversation. I think that what we're saying here is that the resources and tools are available to us now to where the conversation has a foundation and our children, our youth can bring the conversation to us and feel safe doing so when they're ready to have these conversations. Because I feel like a lot of adults may be concerned about giving their kids this talk too soon and we're encouraging them to have sex by talking about the pleasure piece of it when like you mentioned earlier it's a holistic thing we're talking about sex we're talking about bodies we're talking about consent we're talking about uh, loving yourself and understanding what your body does we're talking about relationships to other people so when we talk about you know three four-year-olds touching themselves and then hearing stop don't do that there aren't any boundaries around that so we're teaching children that they can't do it and we're not really giving them what's okay. I find that when you tell someone not to do something, you're sending them off from one direction to go in any other direction. And we're talking about from a sphere here. So they can go, like, that's one direction that they can't go out of the other 359 degrees that'll branch off into other series of directions. And we've seen that on a recent podcast episode where we had a guest who contracted chlamydia at age 12 and herpes at age 15. And between that, there was no sexual health conversation. There was no sex conversation. There was just none of that allowed. And this, again, just goes back to communities where there's a lack of or absence of resources. And we talked a little bit about this uh, before off the podcast where you said dealing with it in black and brown communities is a challenge as well with things like the community and church um, and just a resistance to 
this kind of sex ed. So I want to ask you, what can we do in these instances where the parents feel, and I'm speaking from my experience, like there's a loss of control and like maybe we're encouraging our kids to have sex at an early age by having these conversations? Sure. It is a very common concern. So I would completely affirm that for anyone who is worried. I get where you're coming from. I get the thought process. What we are finding as the professionals who do this work is that having these conversations and making sure that it is inclusive of all of the options available when it comes to sex and protecting oneself actually delays the age of sexual initiation. So the young people who are getting really great comprehensive sex education are actually waiting longer to have sex uh, than their counterparts who are not receiving comprehensive sex ed. The kids who are receiving sexual risk avoidance, also known as abstinence-only programming, are actually engaging in sex at an earlier age is what we're finding. And so for, for me personally, what I have learned is that they already know that there's pleasure included with sex. From a very young age, they can touch themselves and realize, I like how I feel when that happens. We also have other things that really are out of our control, whether that be media, they they have access to all of this content on their phones, their, their peers are talking about it. They are hearing stuff already when it comes to sex. And so I like to use the analogy of you have your kids sitting in a house and there's a swimming pool in the backyard and that's sex. And they hear everyone outside having fun. They're enjoying themselves. They're laughing. This is great. We love having it. It's just wonderful. And they can't see because of the wall what's going on out there. All they can hear is all of the wonderful things that are happening outside. What I want to do is if you decide to get into the pool, I want to make sure that you're safe because although it can be fun, let me just remove this 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 shield for you, this um, whatever's blocking your, your view here. Let me give you an open eye as to what this can look like, what the risks are, how it can be pleasurable and being honest about that and the ways in which that could happen. Then you know what's going on outside. You're not constantly thinking about what are they doing outside? What's that noise? Why is that so cool? It sounds so fun. Everyone's talking about it. I have no idea what's happening. Instead, I have removed that shield for you. So now you know exactly what's going on. You know why people may be laughing. You know why people may find it enjoyable. If you so choose to then engage in a sexual relationship, then you have the tools necessary in order to do it in a safe way. I don't want life to happen to young people. That is what drives me in this work. I want you to be able to make a decision that has been informed. And so you knew what all of the, all of the things that were possible as a result of it. Now for my communities that I specifically am working in because of whether it be cultural norms or a lack of education, I have to acknowledge that there is an inequity in what kind of education my kids are getting. They are not getting the same thing as their counterparts. So what we want to do is to go and provide even more just to get them to the same baseline, true equity in sexual health education. 
uh, to ensure that they can then make informed decisions. It's not just okay to continue to go in and say like, wow, the black and brown kids are you know, experiencing higher rates of STIs. It's having to dismantle a lot of that racial biases, a lot of like misinformation from the medical community, misuse from the medical community, going in and addressing the real issues that are happening that are now causing some of these disparities is the kind of work that I am personally doing. Uh, but it's a lot of work and we have a long way to go and it requires a lot of acknowledgement of poor behavior, poor decision making as a society. And so constantly pushing ourselves to one, acknowledge that there is an issue and then identifying ways of addressing it. I have one more really important question, and if you don't feel comfortable going into this, we don't have to. But for me, in hindsight now, I'm an adult, and I feel like I've done enough introspection and self-reflection to realize, like, the root of a lot of things. But I know that growing up as a black man, my mom, my grandfather, my dad, my grandmother, their priority was to keep me safe. So it was really about survival. So things like avoid the police as much as possible, Yes. don't talk to strangers, what happens in this house stays in this house. And it was just out yeah. of this like fear of, of shame, fear of judgment, and then also fear of being found out. You know, the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, like finding shit out like we got this new car that we can't afford, you know, <laughs> or figuring out their financial status. And I'm seeing that People aren't aware of little things like this. And when I say people, I mean non-black, non-people of color. This just isn't a reality to them. And to the parents of black and brown people in communities, we're talking about people who work way more, who are far more tired, who also have to worry about the injustices that are going on, who watch the fucking news as well. (laughs) And are always afraid of something happening to their children. So it's like we're essentially going home to where our parents are either not there because they're working or they're dead tired and just they just can't. And this is something that I have felt alone in, like when I've gotten out of my environment. When you talk to people who haven't gone through these things and it's like, your childhood problems and my childhood problems did not look the same. So I'm faced with this recently i've published episodes and made sure to point out that these were specifically created for black people navigating a diagnosis or who need these resources and of course there had to be one white person to say what "What does race have to do with this and i'm like hey listen i have 110 of these episodes and i make one for black people let me have one tenth (laughs) one one tenth of the space that I've created here. I lay that out as a foundation to ask you the following question because it's in people's minds, I'm sure, but they ask, what does race have to do with it? And to me, it's everything. It's everything. And for someone to be able to say, well, I don't see race or I don't see color, like that is a fucking privilege because I have to in order to survive. So while non-black, non-person of color, I don't want to say Chad, but Chad is immediately what comes to mind, yeah. uh, can 
opt out of seeing color, I don't have that luxury. And neither yeah. do the minorities, the black people, the people of color who grow up in these communities. They just can't see that. On a macro level, you say, oh, their income level's low, so they don't have resources. It's not just that. Also, it's a system, I believe. Yes. And we play into the system and we perpetuate the system and it's for survival. It's like we have to, if we're going to survive, then this is what we need to do. Whereas outside of these oppressed communities, survival is like not even a big deal. You know, I hear people who say, I was so depressed, I couldn't get out of bed today. And I'm like, fuck, if I were depressed... I have to get out of bed. Like, I have to go to work. And it just, it looks so different based on race, cultural background, economics, and of course, like, the things that we were brought up with in our household. So I would like for you to be able to touch on that and the importance of a tool like Amaze as a sex education piece to come in and have such an effect on it. Because I really believe that something like this does. And my parents, my family, they sent me off to school thinking that I was going to get everything else. So street smarts at home, book smarts at school, and I'm learning how to navigate life. But that wasn't the case. There is so much that the black and brown communities are having to face to go to school. You know, I live in New Orleans. I work in D.C., but in my home, like in my community, it's not uncommon for our kids to see a dead body going to school, to have experienced the death of a loved one, and then go to class the next day and do geometry. And I find that the people who look like me, the kids who look like me, the black and brown children are then labeled as bad and disruptive and not willing to take on some of this education. They don't want to be here when in actuality, they are having to overcome so much adversity just to sit in the desk, let alone be present. I was called into a school a few years ago where sixth graders were having sex in the hallways and the teachers were livid. They were ready to suspend or expel everyone. You know, these were bad kids. And then having kind of diffused the situation a bit and had some conversations with the young people, quickly learned that one of the students, his brother had been murdered the evening before. And here he was, his, you know, best friend, his older brother, he walked into school every day murdered last night in front of his home and here he is in class doing sixth grade literature someone offered to give him a blowjob and he was like this was something i thought it would make me feel better you know i'm just trying to survive i'm just trying to cope and sex is such an easy way to immediately feel better to cope to get to the next moment that you have to overcome that it becomes a tool, you know, and having to acknowledge the entire world that our kids are having to live in and not acknowledging the risk that they are having to traverse as well is completely unfair. 
and then we're looking at the data and we don't understand like why are the rates so high for HIV and for STIs and unwanted pregnancies and this is why there is a system of oppression that continues to impact our communities in a way in which we can't get out of it there is no equity when it comes to education to housing to healthy food access to bare minimum necessities and at the same time we're like well why like why are we why do we need to do this extra work why do we need to have this conversation why is that an issue that's not fair to everyone else i hear it all of the time and i think until we as a society can acknowledge that the folks who need to be doing the work are not us we are not the people who should be doing all of this difficult work right now of figuring this out but instead the people who hold that power and how they need to dismantle the system it's very unfair to place that burden on this community which has already just held so much of that stress it's it is and i'm happy you touched on uh the other things as well as far as like the healthy foods and just limited access to resources i know that there is also this resistance to accepting help because of this distrust from yeah. people who don't look like us don't come yeah. from where we've come from yeah it's true and it's true in the school system too and a lot of the teachers don't look like us and it makes you question, you know, like, are you out for my best interest? And like, how do we start addressing that? I'm happy we're having the conversations. I think there's still a lot of opportunities for growth to figure out how to do this in a more transformative and sustainable way, because there's definitely very deep rooted issues here. I have a master's in public health. I'm very much into data and research. And it was so interesting to me. I read an article that discussed how your socioeconomic status, how much money you make, what your degrees are that you have, pretty much anything that you could do to kind of better your life for yourself and for your children, how in black and brown communities, regardless of like how well you do for yourself, there are still some things that you are at a higher risk for just due to stress alone and no one can figure out like where that connection is so me sitting here with the privilege that i personally have of going to a really great school going to undergrad going to graduate school being able to provide my kids with a lot of the same i was at risk for you know preterm labor for some reason african-american women are more likely to go into early labor than any other uh, demographic no one can figure that out I too, when I learned that my second child was a boy, instead of being excited, I cried. I was so worried. I was like, how do I keep my child safe? That was my initial thought. He's three years old and right now he's really cute. And everyone's like, oh, you're just so cute. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, but give him 13 years, you're gonna be crossing the street when you see him walking down, clutching your purse, heading to the other side. How do I keep him safe? There's no amount of education. It, there's a sense of fear and stress and hopelessness of, how do I provide my kids with the same life that they deserve, that other their counterparts have access to, don't have to worry about, in a way that allows them to explore the freedoms of like being a kid and learning how to live their life and 
grow in how to become an adult because I have to back off a little bit in order for them to practice those things. How do I do it in a way that I know that they're going to come home to me at the end of the night? And that's the kind of challenge that I think we're dealing with. And then to just come in and talk to them about like, okay, now avoid unwanted pregnancies and don't get an STI is really unfair. I read a different article where it was really talking about how black and brown people are having babies at a younger age because our life expectancy isn't as long. And it's almost a way of ensuring that our, that our bloodline is continuing. It was a very interesting way of thinking about it. And I, I get it. You know, I just, my, I have a younger sister who's in her early twenties. She had a friend who was murdered two days ago. And these are the kinds of issues that we're dealing with on top of like health issues and the lack of access to really great education. And I don't know what it requires. I hope it, it continues with like really great conversation of us trying to figure out what to do, but I think it also is going to require those folks who have power to kind of step back and acknowledge that they too are perpetuating and holding up these systems of oppression because they benefit them and that they're going to have to be able to like relinquish that in order for it to truly be dismantled. When you allow yourself to be so distant from it, it allows you to treat it like it isn't there. Oh, it doesn't really affect me, so I don't need to do anything. And even when we had the uh, the abortion, the women's reproductive rights was really big in the media for a while. One of the thoughts that crossed my mind was, oh, this is clearly something that is encouraging more early pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy, because now it's like, oh, you can't get an abortion. So who does this really affect? Exactly. It affects the impoverished communities where resources are already limited and there may be a few people who want to have an abortion. But always, like, I, I look at it like this, you know, we're in a society where we see public lynchings in the media regularly for black people, um, whether it be police brutality or murder or we're killing one another. We get to a point where we're educating ourselves. We have more access to information. We're learning. We're staying out of trouble. We're going to school. We're playing sports. We're doing all these different things. And now that that conveyor belt is threatened by us having this knowledge because our women are being on birth control, our males are wearing condoms or doing other things in terms of reducing the risk of uh, early parenting or becoming parents early on so the system is threatened by lower production of black brown babies to go into this system of oppression feed the prison system whatever and this is just like a conspiracy theory that i have so this is not based on any fact whatsoever but like it these kinds of thoughts just don't cross the minds of the people who are so far gone and disconnected from this environment that they can't see that it's not something you can just throw money at. It's not something you can just throw resources at. And then when they try to come in and see what's needed, again, they're met with this resistance, this distrust, because it's like, we can't trust you. So what I think we really need is and openness to these conversations. If we're not going to allow people in, then we need to use the people who are in. Then the people who are in it have to step up 
there's not any incentive for them to step up. So we need to be able to bring resources into the community and pay these people for stepping up. So we're talking about the minorities who hold influence in the communities. And unfortunately, these are probably not going to be the most ethical people. These are the people that are feared. Um, we're talking about like your your pastors, your church heads, and your shit. You might even be talking about your gang leaders and your drug dealers. But like, this is a conversation that really needs to be had that people don't want to accept at all. It's true. We recently released the National Sexuality Education Standards. So these are the standards. They're not mandated that all curricula taught meet these standards, but it's like what we hope people aspire to and hopefully achieve of like they cover these set topics. And one of those topics in this newest set is does your content discuss racial equity in, in a meaningful way? And the confusion and the questions uh, that came afterward of, like, this has nothing to do with sex education were baffling to me and terrifying at the same time because these are the people who are the decision makers in this field who are questioning, like, why do we need to have this conversation? We're hopefully making some progress, but I think it's a very long road and it's not moving fast enough for our kids, for our generation right now. And I think I just have to continue to hope that we push, we get the right people in power, that we can make some changes that will directly impact this kind of work. And whatever I can do from my position working in sex ed, in schools and highlighting this as I work with thousands of teachers across the country. I think we have to celebrate those small wins of like those of us who are doing this kind of work, you're doing this wonderful podcast, reaching people and hopefully putting on a light bulb somewhere for them to even think about it and potentially have a conversation with a, with a friend or a colleague. We each do our own part in, in the hopes that eventually we could find a way to to make some sort of change it's more of bringing awareness to it accepting your role in it and then making a decision of what kind of action can be taken and then inspire that action so that's what I'm hoping to do. That's what I hope to strive for with creating this nonprofit, for continuing to do this podcast, for bringing on the guests that we have on. That's my goal. So um, if you're someone who wants to get involved with any of the organizations we've had on the podcast, but especially in Amaze, don't hesitate to reach out. You know how you can find them. You can contact me and I'll connect you to the resources that are needed in order for us to further this conversation. But I know that that was a challenging conversation to have and it's one that we don't get to have enough. There's not enough of it, even on social media, in the media. And I feel like our energy to have that conversation and not be trained, it's very limited. It's very challenging to talk and not feel uh, exhausted afterwards but I feel like whenever it feels right whenever it's right I mean in this case it's productive I feel recharged by being able to have this exchange with you because I feel like this is really going to go somewhere and create some type of action to be inspired or something so I appreciate your willingness to go that deep with me and share those insights because it's really 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 important this isn't just a tool for 
the home, this is a tool that serves as something that expands out into the community and the community expands it. I'm picturing sort of like a network that when all pieces are lighting up green, then we've got this ripple effect that expands further out into the community, into the world. So we're talking about at home, we're talking about at school, and we're talking about in the communities. And I've seen from one of our guests, the guest that I referenced earlier, who um, was sexually abused, sexually assaulted, one of the things that she said was that she wishes she would have been able to have this kind of a conversation. Had her parents had access to this kind of tool, she would have had a completely different life. She would have had resources available in her community, her community, the members who were engaging in this dysfunctional behavior that you know, reflects from being the tickler who identifies the body response and doesn't hear no and taking that into adulthood, that person then becomes an abuser, a pedophile, and so many other things that we don't have to dive deep into. But I want people to understand that there are long-term consequences to depriving our children of the truth. When our youth doesn't have the truth, then they're vulnerable to deception. And they're vulnerable to dysfunction, they're vulnerable to predators, they're vulnerable to the bad that's out there. So it's just like the pool analogy you just used. If they're going to go swimming, then it's best to let them know, hey, okay, make sure there's a lifeguard. You want to make sure you wear this flotation device or we're going to take swim lessons. There are all these things that you can do with the truth because you also know what your children are going to be doing. You know what youth is doing. They're comfortable saying, hey, I'm going to go over to my friend's house and you're familiar with who that friend is or you have a little context because you've set the foundation for them to come home and talk about them. So if there's anything that's wrong or questionable behavior, then that person, that youth, that child is able to come to you and say, hey, I'm not feeling right about this. Here's what's going on. And you're able to step in as the adult and make the right decision to hold uh, perpetrators accountable to correct course on behavior that isn't ethical as well and your children also feel empowered their voices are heard so they know that they can use them and there's just all these empowering elements to having comprehensive honest sex ed that involves a holistic approach i couldn't agree with you more courtney and just to add to that continuing these conversations regardless of your child's sex or gender. That is another part of the conversation where folks I'm finding are individualizing what kinds of conversations they're having based on their child's sex. And that's an issue as well. And that we don't need to just have consent conversations with our daughters. That we need to have consent conversations with all of our children that we need to continue these conversations so that people feel affirmed and can then start to feel like they do have control over their body, regardless of their sex and their gender. And I think Amaze does a really great job of like starting those conversations of how that has looked currently in our society of, you know, pink is for girls and blue is for boys and all of that 
stuff. Uh, I don't know a nice way of putting that, but it's really difficult to um, have these conversations, whether they be in schools or at home, if we're not creating affirming spaces for all young people, and that is inclusive of who they're attracted to, respecting who they are as a person, respecting their identity, taking small steps to show that respect to our young people uh, and modeling those conversations of like how it should look when they are then interacting with their peers. So couldn't agree with you more. I have hope for the future. The young people are definitely expecting more from us. So I see it happening. That's awesome. And I see it being delivered through organizations like Amaze, Sex Positive Families, and I see a lot of sex educators on social media who are pushing sex ed in schools, this comprehensive sex ed, and it makes me very hopeful as well. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to leave us with, or what's something that you're not asked that you wish there was more content around or that you wish people would ask you? That's a really great question. I feel like so often, and I get it as a parent, you want to protect your kids and the thought of your kids being sexual beings is such a difficult concept to think of. Well, the thought of our parents being sexual beings is scary to think of. Absolutely. I don't want to know about that. What I'd love to leave this with is just remembering the human aspect of this, that ultimately what we want more than anything is to make sure that our young people feel loved and appreciated and valued. And having these conversations creates protective factors for our young people in order to, whether that be from a predator or someone looking to harm them, or creating an affirming space where they feel heard and that their needs are then being reflected back to them in the conversation and whatever kind of resources and tools you are providing to them. This is a way, a very tangible way to demonstrate the respect that you want from your children back to them and acknowledging them as a whole person is a wonderful way to create that space for them to truly flourish. I acknowledge that it's not easy and that I do this for a living and my kids still catch me off guard with questions sometimes. And I think giving ourselves those moments to take a breath and acknowledge that we don't have to be in control, that we don't need to know everything hopefully takes a little bit of that pressure off of whether those be parents, caregivers, and or teachers. But the fact that you can come back and say, I don't know the answer to that, but I will get back to you. I will go and find out what it is. Let's go research it together. Starts to build that relationship where your young people will will feel safe enough to come to you when they need that kind of support. And they will need it. And ultimately, that's something I think everyone can agree upon. We want our kids to be well. We care about their health and well-being. And this is an aspect of that. We can't just treat one, you know, we can't just feed them and get them to school. I want to make sure that they are completely and fully 
capable and ready to take on their adult lives, whatever they may be. And we are excited, those of us who do the sex education work across the country, we are excited to partner with parents and community stakeholders and those of you who have abilities to make sustainable change. And we appreciate and welcome that. You are, parents are by far one of the most powerful communities within schools. No one wants an angry parent at their door and having angry parents complaining about my kids not getting enough sex ed, you're my new best friend. So do some research, feel like you can build your own confidence and ability to continue these conversations and then try to find ways to like figure out what's happening within your schools. It's small little steps that really start to weave together that safety net of what we're trying to do to make sure that no kid is feeling like they've slipped through a crack. How can we find you? You can find us at amaze.org and our videos are on YouTube as well. So you can check us out there. We have a ton of resources as well at our company website, advocatesforyouth.org and even have a parent portal there where they can find information and resources specifically related to poor caregivers. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you so much, Courtney. I really enjoyed talking with you and Thank you for allowing me the space to share. All right. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. I can be found at spfpp.org, or you can connect with me on social media at H on my chest. If you are considering getting involved with the podcast or getting involved with the nonprofit and you want to provide support, please know we're always looking for funding opportunities. So if you know of any grants or organizations that may want to throw some money out there under the umbrella of sex education in any way, shape or form, please let me know. Our main goal is to provide support for people who are navigating life after an STD diagnosis and help them with finding the support that they need afterwards. So if you want to donate, visit spfpp.org. You can become a Patreon member, a Patreon subscriber, a patron. It's one of those. I'll look at what it was and delete the other two out. And then you can also donate through PayPal or Venmo. Till next time, stay sex positive.